0: Hello and welcome to The Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stamil-Major. In this episode, we're continuing with the book, The Cruises of the Joan by W.E. Sinclair. We're on chapter 21, and this is part 15 of the reading. Now, if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash The Mariner. And there, for $5 a month, you can help support the podcast Now, coming in January of 2023, I'm going to be reading another book, a separate book, which will be available only in the Patreon area, with that minimum donation of $5 a month. So if you'd like more content, if you'd like to hear more of these books, head over to patreon.com forward slash themariner, and you'll be able to pick up an extra edition there. But now on with the story. Chapter 21. To Iceland. From Peterhead we laid a course for Duncansby Head and the Pentland Firth. It was misty all the way, the mist thickening as we went north. We passed through a fleet of herring drifters and one of them was in the act of hauling his nets. Those herrings that had not been artful enough to dodge the nets were stuck in the meshes by their heads, and the fishermen shook them into the fish well as they pulled the mile or two of nets on board. The Pentland Firth Affords the shortest and quickest passage into the open waters of the North Atlantic. We had learned all about it before we reached it. The Book of Sailing Directions for this region devotes several pages to describe how bad the 12 miles of Earth can be. Even battleships treat it with enormous respect. Sailing vessels, big and small, approach it with questioning awe, and they keep in readiness to run away at the slightest show of unfriendliness. There are few places in the world where the tidal streams run so swiftly. The Joan at her best could not sail half so fast as these currents move, and she could never dare to go near except with a fair tide, and breeze, and very fine weather. We agreed that we would attempt the passage of the Firth only if conditions were undoubtedly in our favour. If they were not, we could make our way further north, to Fair Isle, pass between the Orkneys and the Shetlands, and so go out into the Atlantic. The mist hid the land from us, but when I judged that we should be on the latitude of Duncansby Head. We turned west, and before long there appeared a vague, misty island with a couple of lighthouses upon it. Reference to the chart and light list showed this to be muckle scary. Reference to the tide table showed that the tidal current through the Pentland Firth was just on the turn against us. The wind, however, was light, and fair, so that we determined to wait for six hours. Hunting on the chart and the sailing directions for a convenient place to wait in, I found that our good luck had brought us to an excellent position, in the circumstances in which we found ourselves. East of the Little Scary Rocks was an eddy of smooth water where no current existed. It may have been a mile or two long and a mile wide, being semi-elliptical in shape with the Little Scaries as a base. We hove to in this area and whenever we approached the edge which was plainly marked by a line of swirling ripples, we sailed round on the other tack and hove to again. It was a cheerful thought that we had been so clever as to find this calm and safe waiting place where the water remained so still and quiet. All around were streams that would have carried us miles away from the Firth in a short time. We could easily have been carried so far that we should have required the whole of the next tide to get back again. Of course, this game might go on forever. When the six hours had passed, we sailed out into the tideway, which was now slack water, pointed the boat right upon her course and waited. It was not long, a half hour perhaps, before we were seized by the stream, now a favourable one, and held in its powerful but friendly grip. The wind aft disappeared. The Jones seemed to have steerageway, but only just steerageway. The water all around boiled up from below like the water in a kettle without its bubbles. This was a sign that something was happening to us. Looking behind me, I was in time to see Muckle Skerry and its lighthouses fade quickly in the fog, and then there was nothing at all but fog to be seen anywhere. Presently an island appeared to Starboard, Swona. then another to Port, Stroma. We were between them, and they disappeared behind us swiftly and without a sound. We were again enveloped in thick mist. We looked out for the Merry Men of May, long, tumbling overfalls which stretched right across our path from the mainland to the Isle of Hoy. We may have seen them, but we could not be sure that we did. Once I thought that a playful little overfall chased us for half a mile, but it was only a playful one and cheering to look at. The Firth must have been an especially amiable mood for our passage through it. In less than two hours from our waiting place in the eddy, we were through and away into the wide ocean, some sixteen miles, and that in the first two hours of the stream, the weakest. It was a record speed for the Joan, heaven help those against whom the Pentland Firth directs its anger. With a fair but ever-increasing wind, we ran a hundred miles to sea, far enough to be moderately clear of danger. By the time we had made this encouraging run, both wind and sea had risen to such an extent that we considered it safer to give over sailing and wait for lighter weather. When the wind and waves grow too big and strong for a little boat to sail, she must stop. In general, if a small boat is left with no sail up, she will ride up and down in the waves in safety. The wind blows violently and she goes before it. The waves help her in the same direction and she offers no resistance. Because she does not resist these forces, she is safe. Spray and wave tops will be swept over her, and she will be very wet outside, but with the cabin door shut, she can be a dry home below. The Joan had often ridden out bad weather in this way, without giving us cause to be alarmed, and with a sea anchor out and small sail hoisted astern, she had ridden out several gales in what we called comfort. But there was a suspicion of discomfort in this twelve hours rest, in previous years, we had grown to look upon weather which was bad enough for a sea anchor with a sigh of relief. We could both get a good rest from the everlasting four-on and four-off, but the sea here was not by any means so good to us as it had been in other parts. The waves were not so regular, they used to break over us from too many directions, and this worried us a good deal. In the middle of the night, while we were both enjoying a sound sleep, there suddenly came a noise like thunder. We sprang up in alarm, and the noise ceased as suddenly as it had begun. And as it ceased, we recognised what it was. It was the noise of the cable tearing out through the fairlead, windlass and chainpipe. All this noise of rushing chain was multiplied many times by the cabin, which acts as a huge sounding box. I went on deck to see what had happened, and there I found that one of the poles by which our chain is kept from running out was disengaged. It had been thrown right back. The other pole was keeping the chain inboard. I could only guess the cause of the accident. A bigger wave than usual must have swept over the foredeck and lifted both poles in its rush. The one pole was jerked right up and over and remained disengaged. The other was kept from going so far by a long iron handle which served as a lever to weigh our anchor. The chain had rushed out so fast that this pole slid over the moving links. Then when the chain slowed down and the pole dropped into place, it stopped the cable dead. I put lashings over the windlass so that neither Paul could rise again and went back to my bunk rather disturbed. This kind of accident had never happened before. We sailed through ten days of mixed weather to reach Iceland. The usual sequence of events was for a fair wind to come gently after us. We set all our biggest and lightest sails and made a good headway for a few hours. Then, with a gradual increase in the strength of the wind, The big sails were replaced by smaller ones and we made still better headway for a few more hours. The wind continued to freshen and sail had to be reduced bit by bit until there was none left and we had to wait for better times. Half a day or more later, the better time came quite suddenly and we hurried to put sail on the yacht once more. There would then follow a period during which there was no wind at all and spars and ropes and blocks would be banging and chafing until we lowered the sails to save our nerves. Then the sequence would repeat itself. The sun showed but seldom through the never-disappearing fog. Now and again, we sailed or drifted across Bill Bailey's bank and the lousy bank and other fishing grounds with startling names. We saw a steam trawler at her work in the mist. But of good sailing breezes, we had few, and of sunny days I do not remember one. It was hard and monotonous work getting to Iceland. Jackson pointed out to me a bigger fish that he observed one day. It was passing 20 yards away, moving at about 10 miles an hour. All we could see was a part of one fin sticking up out of the water, and a portion of his tail as it swished him along. It seemed to us to be some 10 feet long. People to whom we referred this matter to later on said it must have been a shark. One man said that man-eating sharks were to be found in these waters. We were duly thankful that he had not chosen to eat us. Jackson was cynically powerful of my power of celestial navigation, heaven knows why. Perhaps because his training had been of a legal nature as distinct from scientific. The legal mind must be suspicious of all men. He had the arithmetic of the business, plain to see. He worked the simple latitude problems every time, but when it came to the cold fact of trusting to the result, he failed. Lack of courage, I call it. According to our latitude sites, we had come as far north as we ought. The visibility was poor, and had been so ever since we left Scotland. With good visibility, we ought to have seen the mountains of Iceland a hundred miles away, and we had seen nothing but the ocean. I changed our course to one due west. Jackson objected, on the ground, that there was no good reason for doing it. We are close on the latitude of Cape Portland, I said, and you know the sailing directions warn us not to get to the east of Iceland, We are therefore going west while we can." He did not mutiny. He waited to be convinced. And later on in the day when the sun and breeze combined began to suck up and drive away the misty invisibility, there was the vague outline of a mountain high in the air above our heads. This outline sharpened and the mountains began to gleam in white summits, and the slopes were plain, purple and brown and green, right to the steep crags and rocks where they dropped into the ocean. Then, a whole glorious panorama of water and land and sky displayed itself beneath a blazing sun. Around us, flocks of seabirds flew, gulls and terns, sea parrots and skewers, divers and ducks and geese. From the time we made our landfall, we had fine, sunny weather. It was a real summer in Iceland. They had been enjoying such weather all the time at our expense. The finest summer, they told us, that even Iceland had had for many years. It was little more than a 100 miles to Reykjavik where we were bound, but it took us four days to drift round this corner of the land. We took two days to cross the bay that I had already spoken of, a bay notorious for the many wrecks strewn along its desolate shores. The violent gales that blow so frequently right into it make a death trap of it for any sailing vessel caught there, and they are encouraged to depart with all available speed. Our speed was one and a half knots. I saw a poor gull chased viciously to and fro by a biggish, slaty-coloured bird. The gull had my useless sympathy, and I even meditated an effort to frighten the pursuer. In a minute or two, the whole quarrel finished, and each bird went its own way. I saw nothing to cause either the attack or its cessation, but Jackson said he'd read about a bird called a skewer, which attacked the gulls when they had gorged themselves with fish, and so frightened the poor creatures that they disgorged the fish from their stomachs. The skewer then made his dinner of it. We rounded the southwest corner of Iceland about dusk and sailed very gently northward, toward the bay where Reykjavik Harbour was to be found. During the night, a warm, peaceful twilight night, a fishing boat motored alongside to inquire who we were. The fishermen knew a few words of English, and with interesting struggles on both boats, we made them understand enough. He was delighted to learn what we told him and we felt it was charming of him to be so overjoyed we tried to gather some information from him about iceland and the weather they usually had and the compass variations but our linguistic powers were only sufficient to confuse everybody we parted at length with expressions of goodwill at least his sounded like goodwill and i hope ours did too 24 hours later as a night came on we drew near Reykjavik There are many dangers in the approach to the harbour, and to make matters worse, the district is one of those in which the compass is of little use. There may be people who understand the wobblings of the compass needle about its bay, but our books said only that it wobbled and gave us no information that was of use to us. The lighthouses, however, that mark the channel are well and prettily arranged. We were lost in admiration of their reds and greens and whites as these colours flashed in the appropriate directions. We looked up the rules, and by keeping out of this colour and in that, by sailing from the red of the first line into the green of the second until we saw the white of the third, we succeeded in finding the harbour in safety. We passed under the stern of a fine schooner yacht before we let go our anchor, and I read the name Primrose 4, Boston. Jackson and I were surprised enough to meet her here, but when the crew of the Primrose awoke next morning, they were much more surprised to see the Joan, Americans and British made great friends of one another that day. The American yacht had crossed the Atlantic to race in the Fastnet race in 1926, and she had nearly won it. She was now being sailed home during vacation time, and it was by the merest chance that we had met in Reykjavik. They promised us a great reception when we reached the United States. Primrose 4 made our mouths water to sail her. She was such a combination of strength, beauty and efficiency. Her passage across the Atlantic had been made in 23 days. She used to pass the poor steamers. Jackson learnt from the owner of the Primrose how to make chafing gear for the shrouds and topping lift. The Primrose man had the art from an ancient shellback. Before we left Reykjavik, we fastened some in our own rigging. It was made from unravelled strands of old rope and was simple and effective. Next day, we had the Joan put upon a slipway for a last overhauling, for a few repairs and for painting. The shipyard did all the jobs well and when the little boat came down into the water again she was not only as fit for the sea as we could make her but she also looked very gay in a new coat of paint gay enough to be well received by anybody we found iceland to be a very dear dry country the price of methylated spirits is enough to prove this we wanted to replenish our stock and intended to buy half a gallon at home this would have cost us two shillings and sixpence In Germany, the price is just sixpence. In Iceland we found that it could only be obtained at a pharmacy, and when we asked for half a gallon, the pharmacist shouted in surprise. There was not half a gallon in all the land, he told us. He offered us his total stock for 18 shillings, but we refused to bring his native land so near a total abstinence from spirits. The mate came back one day and told me that he had been taken to see a geyser. Our sailing guidebooks had informed us that there were hot springs near the town and that they were used for washing the linen of ships. Neither of us had seen a geyser. My idea of one was that of a column of hot water spouting from the ground. You had only to throw a dirty shirt and have it quickly cast back at your feet, clean, hot and wet. I determined to take my pile of washing to this convenient phenomenon. Jackson then told me it was not a spouting column at all. A small stream of water gushed from the earth and a pipe had been laid to it to gush through. The water was then led into a receptacle. A trough, I think, where washerwomen washed with labour as they had to do in other parts of the world. The only advantage of it, certainly a real advantage, was that the water was already hot. It was hot enough to cook potatoes if you cared to be patient enough. I went for a walk instead. It seemed to me that the one thing that was cheap in Iceland was carefully hidden from tourists. I went for a short tramp next afternoon. The country quite close to Reykjavik was rough, rocky and mostly bare. The road soon vanished and became a haphazard affair. I wandered along the coast and the fjord struck me as a delightful place to sail in. There were many creeks and bays that would have made first-rate places for a small boat to lie in. A cruise round Iceland ought to make the best of sport – You want a good sized boat, one big enough to carry an auxiliary engine and coal stoves and a dinghy. It should be large enough to make a comfortable home for a competent crew, and there is no doubt that Iceland is off the usual track. Knowing Iceland was a land of mountains, Jackson had made up his mind to climb a specimen during our stay in Reykjavik. Heckler was a chosen one, and he made inquiries about the route and the method of climbing and how much he would have to pay. He gave up the idea at once. Neither of us had enough money to go anywhere near Heckler. Inquiries as to the existence of a cheaper mountain made people look at him suspiciously. Why did he want to haggle over a mountain? Jackson managed to cut down the price of one of the commoner sorts, but even then it was beyond his means. It got his back up and without letting any of the mountain agents know of his plans, he rose early one morning, took a biscuit and insinuated himself as a passenger on a hayboat which was crossing the bay. Jackson had surveyed the environs of Reykjavik from the Joan and picked on the only available mountain within sight. Once ashore there he climbed his mountain, walked along the top, came down again and tramped for miles and miles round the head of the bay and finally hired a pony to bring him back. By dint of going without his meals, drinking water that ran down the mountainside and keeping a foot longer than was fashionable, he made the day's expenses come to a little less than a pound. But it turned out to be a bad business on his part, for they took it out of us in another way. When I asked for my clearance, without which I could not leave the port, I was referred to the police. They charged me 50 shillings for coming to the country. It was explained to me that every visitor in Iceland had to pay well. If he did not pay for the mountains, he had to pay for something else. I should like to go again to Iceland, I should like to spend a whole summer there but when I do go, I must go in the company of a man of great wealth. I had not rated the chronometer, which was the term we applied to our ship's watch. While we sailed up the east coast, I took two time sites at known positions and rated the watch from these two observations. From them, we found that the watch was losing three seconds a day, and we used that rate on the passage to Iceland. Our landfall showed us that the watch had lost something like 10 seconds a day. In Reykjavik, I got three timings. The two rates found were totally different. Between the first two timings we got a rate of five seconds gain per day, and between the second pair of timings we deducted a loss of three seconds a day, so I knew no more about the watch than I had known before. It evidently had a character and an individuality of its own, and variable ones at that. I forget now what chain of reasoning I followed, but I do remember that I decided to work on the assumption that the watch would lose six seconds a day. After all, we could get our latitude near enough to please us, and longitude did not matter so very much in these latitudes. I think it was the tourist agent who told us one day that a British trawler had been brought into the harbour by a Danish gunboat. Presumably, they had been caught disobeying the regulations, the one regulation being that no foreigner is allowed to fish within the three-mile limit. We, naturally enough, were much interested in knowing that countrymen of ours were in trouble, and we strolled round to the quay where the vessel had been placed, with an idea that we might offer them our help, or if that was of no use, we were prepared to sympathise with them. As soon as they heard our speech, and gathered from it that we had come from their own native land, they invited us aboard to hear their tale. It was soon evident that we could afford them no help, and that our sympathy would be entirely misplaced. I do not mean that they did not deserve our sympathy, but that like any sensible people, they did not want it. They told us that they had just filled their boat with the fish they had caught. All of these fish had inhabited the waters outside the three-mile limit, and rejoicing in the skill and luck by which they had made so good a catch in so short a time, they were starting for home. But they had not scarcely got going at full speed when this gunboat appeared in sight round the corner of Cape Portland, As a matter of fact, the trawler's crew told us they had had news of this particular gunboat and knew very well that she was lying in wait for them. It was this knowledge which had induced them to get away at a great pace for home. For they had had previous experience of this sort of game and they quite understood that the best way of dealing with the despicable tricks of the Icelandic navy was to keep out of sight or at least out of range. The naval people were extremely ignorant of fishing methods, and a great many of them, especially the officers, were not even capable of reading a chart with any great degree of intelligence, at least not fishing charts where the three-mile line of limitation was shown. This particular gunboat, however, was not to be denied. It sent a harmless shot after them, and when this only made them try to get more speed out of their engines than was possible, the gunboat sent a real live shell in their direction to let them know that they meant business. The trawler skipper then slowed down and permitted the gunboat to send a couple of men aboard, who remained there while the two boats steamed to Reykjavik. The skipper was not quite sure what he was going to be charged with. If the charge was that of fishing within the forbidden limit, then they would lose all their catch of fish, all their gear would be confiscated and in addition they would be fined a thousand pounds. If however they were not charged with the crime of fishing, but with only the intention of fishing, then it would not matter quite so much. I forget what would happen in this particular case. I asked the skipper if he had any hopes of getting away scot-free. He replied, not sadly but ferociously, that he thought that there was very little chance of justice in Iceland to be obtained by a foreigner, especially by a British trawler. He said that this particular gunboat had been presented to the Icelanders by the British government and the present had only made matters worse instead of better. This gift gunboat was able to catch British trawling vessels... Those that they had had before had not been fast enough. The skipper did not think very kindly of the British government. As I listened to his story, I wished almost heartily that I owned a three-mile limit and a gunboat and that foreign trawlers would come along to be fined. I could thoroughly enjoy making a good living that way. Our own journey was incomprehensible to these fishermen. They asked if we were doing it for a wager. That was the sole reason which in their minds would have made the trip a thing they could understand. The mate of the trawler seemed to think it a particularly absurd project because neither of us had been professionally engaged upon big boats. One of the crew did ask a sensible question. He wanted to know if we had ever tried out the Joan, and when we told him that she had been sailed to Madeira and had been hove to for five days off Cap Finisterre, he said that she would be able to stand any weather in the North Atlantic. His reasoning was unsound. Iceland is a magnificent country, but it produces little to sustain life, so that the inhabitants are compelled to make some kind of income by catching fish and people. They sell the fish and fine the people. They fined the Joan 50 shillings for going to Reykjavik and made this matter, which I thought bad enough as a business way of encouraging visitors, a great deal worse by saying how sorry they were. They tried to explain that I was being treated leniently compared with the way that they could treat me if I ventured to say much about it, Even a big steamer would be charged the same price. The light dues are four shillings and a tonne register. It is the only country in the world, I should fancy, that makes a profit on its lighthouses. They have a monopoly in this article. Nobody except the government is allowed to put up a lighthouse and charge four shillings a tonne register to everybody who looks at it. And when you come to think of it, lighthouses ought to be cheaper there than anywhere else. Is there any other country which closes them all down for three months in a year? All food is dear in Iceland, and we were unable to find a single onion in the country. Our stock was nearly finished, and we searched the town for onions. The absence of so important and delightful a constituent of a person's daily diet marks Iceland as low down in the scale of civilization. The only articles that appeared to be cheap in this land were pit ponies, Of course these poor creatures were merely ponies in Iceland. They became pit ponies when the English bought them. One kindly spoken gentleman, who to our surprise turned out to be an Icelander, tried to soothe our ruffled feelings after we had paid out that 50 shillings. He said that he would make some things all right for us, level them up as it were by selling us some tin food which he had lying on his hands. A fisherman who had prospered spending a holiday in Iceland angling had sent it on in preparation for his visit. He must have been a very artful fisherman to know so much about the country as all that. Finding afterwards that he was unable to carry out his plan of coming to Iceland, he wrote to the gentleman I have mentioned above to ask him to sell the tins for him. As a result of this request, the fisherman must have found out a great deal more about Iceland than he had known even when he had bought the tins. The gentleman was asked to sell the tins for what he could get. So he sold them to us for what he could get. It was all very high-class tin food. There was liver sausage and smoked sausage, hare soup and oxtail soup, galantine of this and galantine of that. I had hitherto only bought the cheap kinds of tin food, like bully beef and condensed milk. The dearer varieties were very much dearer when you bought them fair and square in the retail market but what we now bought was really good and tasty food. I was left wishing I could afford high-class tin foods all the time. Well, that's the end of today's reading. I hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash The Mariner, where for $5 a month, you can help support this podcast. If you do want to engage with more of the content there, there's uh, unique videos, more podcasts, blogs, lots of different things, and a growing community of people who are interested in all things sailing that's patreon.com forward slash the mariner and well, that's all from the mariners library today and i look forward to speaking to you in the next one cheers